0: For AZPM, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, on the 10th anniversary of a former U of A track and field athlete's passing, find out why his loved ones continue to try to live like LASO. Meet Tucson natives Martha and Emma Peterson a mother and daughter duo that share a special bond through music. And the Rogue Theater presents a radio drama adaptation of the story of the goblins who stole a sexton. It's a holiday story by Charles Dickens that feels like a strange predecessor to A Christmas Carol. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Every December, a unique annual memorial celebrates the life of a former U of A track and field athlete. Next, Katja Mendoza reports on what it means to live like Leso.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Since two thousand
2: and fourteen, a group of friends and family get together for an annual camping trip. Although that sounds like many other planned outings. This one is different. It commemorates the passing of their friend, brother, cousin, and many other things that Leso Uristieta was and still is to those who knew him. This year, just beyond a long and winding dirt road just outside of Catalina State Park, the group honors the 10th anniversary of his passing. In 2013, the U of A hurdler passed away following complications from brain surgery. He was 20 years old. Those who knew him say Leso was incredibly intelligent, both goofy and kind, loyal and determined to pursue medicine so that he could become a reconstructive plastic surgeon to help burn victims. His sister-in-law, Hailey Uristieta, says he wanted to help give people their lives back.
3: Leso was such a great artist and he wanted to be able to apply that to people and do reconstructive things and make people have their life back in ways of giving them, you know, like cleft palates or, you know, if they'd been in some horrific accident, he could reconstruct their face. And so he he wanted to make people better in that way by using something that he was really good at. Um, so it was just always funny because people would always assume what type of plastic surgery, but he's like, no, I... would that's not what I'm interested in. I want to help people feel better about themselves and to give them their life back.
2: Before his career began at the U of A, the Tucson native attended Canyon del Oro High School, where he helped the Dorados earn a second-place finish in the Division II Boys Track and Field State Meet. Leso narrowly won the men's 110-meter hurdles in May 2011. Before that, he had set a personal best in school record time of 1444 for the same event at the annual U of A Willie Williams Invitational, where he still holds the record at his alma mater to this
4: day. Freshman year, this tall, lanky, goofy, uncoordinated kid comes walking out to the track. And it was, <laughs> it's the beginning of a amazing relationship with him and his brother and his family.
2: That's Michelle Girard, she was one of Leso's hurdling coaches at CDO.
4: In the 110 hurdles, you try to get your kids to three three step, and normally it takes them all the freshman year, maybe part of sophomore year. And his first race, he like <laughs> three stepped all ten, and I was like, "Okay, this is this is we got something special," and we did.
2: In the early days of his career, the conversation of competing at the next level was essentially non-existent. It wasn't until the end of his junior year when Gerard says they realized how well Leso was doing statewide. In March 2011, at the annual Willie Williams Classic Track and Field event, is where he caught the eye of U of A Director of Men's and Women's Cross Country and Track and Field, Fred Harvey.
4: His times were probably at the the high school level weren't exactly what Harvey maybe had wanted, but I think it offered him a walk-on. And, um, but then once you coach Leso, that's the dream athlete to coach. And so I know that he was just coming into his own as a senior. He had so much growth that he was going to do at the U of A.
2: Gerard says in college, college recruits look for hurdlers that run a sub fourteen.
4: He had just that 14 that he ran at state and set the school record was his fastest time as a senior but i mean you look at his body type and you look at from what people probably told coach harvey about his work ethic and
5: it was almost like in his mind disbelief like why are you talking to me <laughs> but it was really cute because you know again that just tells you who that young man you know, was in terms of, you know, his ego. It's like, okay, I work hard, I do this thing, but yeah, this is University of Arizona, right? Why me? And one of the very rare situations in my actual coaching and recruiting, you know, uh, career, that I had to convince a young person that they can compete at this level.
2: Even his parents, Isaro and Melissa, were in disbelief at the opportunity.
5: And I remember doing the in-home visit, and we're we're sitting we're talking and we you know we just you know connected you know immediately.
4: So we sat at the table with Coach, uh huh, and we were concerned about how is he going to take all these hard classes, and he says I, I assure you he can do both, and so we said thank you, and he went on his way, but he did want Lesel to go and see the facilities, and that's when I said we said go do it, and yeah. then he calls me. He, he got <laughs> dazzled with the facilities. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Leso and Coach Harvey developed a close relationship from the start. In fact, Leso would try and beat Coach Harvey to early morning training and sometimes be waiting for him well before five in the morning.
5: If I can't have that type of personal relationship with you, you can't run fast enough, jump far enough, I, I, I can't coach you, you know? And, you know, he's like a, you know, a son and a part of my family and it grew, it, it grew very rapidly. But it grew very, very rapidly because I think we, you know, we had a a very good understanding of, you know, what, you know, what our, what, you know, what our likes were, what our needs were and what our expectations were.
2: During his freshman season, Leso clocked a personal best time of 1462 in his event of the 110 meter hurdles at the Pac-12 championships and earned the 2013 Pac-12 All-Academic second team during his sophomore season. Later that year, during his junior year, Lessa was in a car accident. Having been prone to concussions and after suffering some minor whiplash, he was taken in for additional testing. It was then when doctors had discovered an abnormality in his cerebellum.
1: At at that point, when we'd figured out what the options were, I think we were all scared. Lessa was intimidated the most, obviously, as, as the patient. Um... I would say that we, we really did just trust that things would work out though. I, I honestly, after several, several meetings with physicians, looking at the risks, um, the only thing I was left with was just sort of a bad feeling kind of in the days up to it. But our conversations about surgery and, and leading up to it were really a lot lighter in retrospect than perhaps they they might have been, right?
2: Leso and his family opted for surgery. And after a successful surgery, it was during recovery when his brother Geiska says things began to transpire.
1: Two surgeons took him back for a long time. We figured out that there was some kind of problem overnight. And as a result of that problem, um,
2: Leso Iñaki Uristieta passed away on December 20th, 2013.
1: It's really hard to lose your entire future in the uh, in blink of an eye like that.
2: In the years since his death, Leso has been all but forgotten. An endowment scholarship has been established in his name and awarded to an exemplary U of A student-athlete and at his high school alma mater. The Live Like Leso Memorial Award is given to an athlete who exhibits admirable character. The definition of being Leso-like is to be a loving and compassionate person.
1: Well, thank you guys for making it yet another year. And cheers to to 10 years of remembering Leso. We all love and miss him. And it's nice to see that we're still going strong with all this. I love all you guys... Thank you very much again for coming out, and cheers to Leso. To Leso.
5: To Leso. Leso.
2: And this year, just like every other year since his passing, Leso's loved ones gather together and do just that.
1: And I think there's, you know, pieces of Leso that we all see in each other, that um, when we're together, we get to experience that. very much feels like he's still here with us. I don't know, it's hard. It's yeah. I miss how much he hated the mile. <laughs> <laughs> he's one of the fastest runners in the state, but if we had to run the mile for track, all the throwers would still beat him. <laughs> Dude, like, he hated that. That's pretty bad. Oh, I love watching him hate that. Anything over <laughs> 400 meters exactly. Yeah. out. Geisica was the project manager,
5: me and less were the, <laughs> the laborers, and I
1: just did what I was told I was a follower. <laughs> but Leso was smart enough to say, why are we doing this? <laughs> and he said, we're going on strike, and I said, what is that? He said, "He told Geisica we're going on strike, and we went inside, and it was great. Geisica was mad. We try to find
3: joy in all the little things. Like if I see a sunrise or a sunset, I try to enjoy it
2: and take it in the way that he would. Like Lezo said, life is full of hurdles, so be a good hurdler. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Katia Mendoza.
0: Tucson natives Emma and Martha Peterson are a mother and daughter duo that share a unique bond over music. This holiday season, daughter Emma returned to the desert, and the plan was for the two of them to make their debut as an ensemble at a Christmas concert on December 23rd. Unfortunately, illness has intervened, and the concert has been canceled. But next, Hannah Cree talks with the Petersons about their love of opera and its unique and passionate way of storytelling. Oh, good
6: amazing. That was Emma Peterson, a young opera singer and Tucson native who returned to the desert from Seattle this Christmas to talk to AZPM about her experience with music. And she was joined by someone very special to her, her favorite piano accompanist, who also happens to be her mom. My name is Martha Peterson. I'm primarily a writer, but I have also played the piano my whole life. The piece you heard in the beginning is Claude Debussy's Noël des enfants qui n'ont plus des maçons. And Peterson says it's one of the more unique
3: Christmas pieces in her repertoire. It was his last song that he wrote for voice before he died. And it was on the eve of an operation for the cancer that killed him a few years after. As composers usually do, they'll take the text from a poet or from a librettist and set it to music. But Debussy wrote this text himself.
6: In English, the title translates to Christmas Carol for Homeless Children. It's a protest song filled with nationalistic rage, the kind that can only come from living through the horrors of World War I. Here's another sample with a rough translation of the lyrics. Punish them all. Avenge the children of France. The little Belgians, the little Serbians, and the Polish children too. No toys, we want no toys, but may we please get back again our daily bread. Composed in 1915 from the perspective of French orphans, its lyrics are both a plea for the war to end and a furious call for retribution on the children of France's enemies. The WC piece, Peterson says, reminds her of the reason she was drawn to opera in the first place
3: the politics, the drama, and the stories. These pieces bring incredible emotion about the cold that war brings, and he described this piece as the only way he knows how to fight the war. I feel like that's very indicative of musicians always, that our art isn't just something we like to do. It's, it's in our bones as our morality and where we drive our worth and our power from.
6: Since his birth in Florence during the Renaissance, opera has been inseparable from politics and social commentary.
3: And as Peterson explains, the power of her art is what keeps her hooked. It's great to just go up and sing fun songs, right? But it's another thing to, you know, not try and get your audience to feel something, but for them to get some kind of moral worth out of your concert and something that they'll think about afterwards. Opera has a reputation for
6: being, in Peterson's words, hoity-toity, and even she admits she wasn't introduced to it until her mid-to-late teens.
3: I didn't grow up loving opera. I grew up loving singing. I feel like most young adults. Opera's not really in our culture. It's a little out of reach.
6: But after a vocal coach began showing her opera pieces in her teens, Peterson says she fell in love. And with its history as an art form reserved only for the wealthy, she hopes that her work in opera is not just participating, but actively preserving it by reaching new audiences.
3: Maybe I'm, I'm taking a part in, in making opera and classical singing and, and good music more a part of, of people's regular lives.
6: Emma's young daughter, Natalie, also visited AZPM. And with three generations of Petersons
3: in the room, it's clear that music has connected Emma and her mom for her whole life. I think music with anybody is a is a, a different and unique way to connect, but especially so when, when it's my mom, you know, it's a really unique way to uh, to bond with her. And we've just always had this thing together. She's always, she came into the world loving music and so
6: did I. You can keep up with the Petersons on Emma's website, emmapsings.com. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Hannah Curry.
0: The Rogue Theater has been presenting rich theatrical experiences in Tucson for 19 years. In this episode of Rogue Radio, we'll hear an adaptation of a rather obscure Christmas story written by Charles Dickens. It first appeared as part of his popular serialized novel, The Pickwick Papers, in 1836, and it clearly serves as a predecessor to A Christmas Carol. It's the tale of another mean-spirited curmudgeon who must learn a lesson about empathy from a supernatural experience. But in this case, our protagonist's tormentors are not ghosts. They are goblins.
7: The Story of the Goblins Who Stole a Sexton by Charles Dickens In an old abbey town a long, long while ago so long that the story must be a true one there was a gravedigger in the churchyard one Gabriel Grubb Gabriel Grubb was a surly fellow, a lonely man who consorted with nobody but himself. One Christmas Eve, Gabriel shouldered his spade and betook himself towards the old churchyard, for he had a grave to finish by next morning. As he went his way, he saw the light of blazing fires gleam through the old casements and heard the loud laugh and cheerful shouts of those who were assembled. All this was gall and wormwood to the heart of Gabriel Grubb. He clutched the handle of his spade with a firmer grasp as he thought of measles, scarlet fever, whooping cough, and a good many other
8: sources of consolation. Good evening, Gabriel. Ah! Merry Christmas Eve, Gabriel! Uh. We wish you a
3: merry Christmas! We wish you a merry Christmas! We wish... Ah!
2: <laughs>
7: Gabriel Grubb entered the churchyard He jumped into his unfinished grave and began to work
8: Brave lodgings for one brave lodgings for one a few feet of cold earth when life is done a stone at the head, a stone at the feet a rich juicy meal for the worms to eat rank grass overhead and damp clay around Brave lodgings for one these in holy ground! <laughs> A coffin at Christmas. <laughs> a Christmas box. <laughs> Who's there? Huh. Must have been the echoes.
7: It was not. Gabriel started up with terror, for his eyes rested on a form that made his blood run cold. Seated on an upright tombstone was a strange, unearthly figure.
8: Goblin King. What do you do here on Christmas Eve? I came to dig a grave, sir. What man wanders among graves in churchyards on such a night as this? Gabriel Grubb! Gabriel Grubb! <laughs> <laughs> what have you got in that bottle? Hollands, sir. Who drinks Hollands alone in a churchyard on such a night as this? Gabriel Grub! Gabriel Grub! And who then is our fair and lawful prize? Gabriel Grub! Gabriel Grub! Well, Gabriel! What do you say to this? I think I'll go back and finish my work, sir, if you please. Work! What work? The grave, sir! Making the grave! Oh, the grave, eh? Who makes graves at a time when all other men are merry and takes pleasure in it? Gabriel Grubb. Gabriel Grubb! <laughs> I'm afraid my friends want you, Gabriel. Under favour, sir. They don't know me, sir. I don't think the gentlemen have ever seen me, sir. Oh, yes, they have. We know the man with the sulky face and the grim scowl that came down the street tonight, grasping his burying spade. We know the man who struck the boy from the envious malice of his heart because the boy could be merry and he could not. We know him. We know him. (laughs) I am afraid I must leave you, sir. Leave us? Gabriel Grubb going to leave us. (laughs) Ho, ho, ho. <laughs> ho,
7: ho, ho! The Goblin King suddenly darted toward Gabriel, laid his hand upon his collar, and sank with him through the earth into a large cavern. Cold tonight. Very cold. A glass of something warm? Here! A goblet of liquid fire was produced.
8: I'm not in the habit of taking anything warm at night. But the goblins held him and poured the blazing liquid down his throat. And now show this man of misery and gloom a few of the pictures from our great storehouse.
7: A thick cloud rolled away to disclose a small and scantily furnished apartment. A crowd of little children were gathered round a bright fire clinging to their mother's gown and gambling around her chair. But a change came upon the view. The scene was altered to a small bedroom where the youngest child lay dying. His young brothers and sisters crowded round his little bed and seized his tiny hand, so cold and heavy, but they shrunk back from its touch, for they saw that he was dead. Again the light cloud passed across the picture. The father and mother were old and helpless now, but cheerfulness sat on every face as they crowded round the fireside. Slowly and peacefully, the father sank into the grave, and soon after, the sharer of all his cares followed him to a place of rest. The few who yet survived them knelt by their tomb and watered the green turf with their tears.
8: What do you think of that? It's very pretty. You're a miserable man. Miserable, miserable man. man! Miserable man! man. <laughs> Show him some more!
7: At these words, the cloud was again dispelled and a beautiful landscape was disclosed to view. The sun shone from out the clear blue sky, the water sparkled beneath his rays, and the trees looked green and the flowers were gay. Yes, it was morning, the bright, balmy morning of summer. The ant crept forth to her daily toil. The butterfly basked in the warm rays of the sun. Myriads of insects spread their transparent wings and reveled in their brief but happy existence.
8: What do you think of that? Very pretty. You're a miserable man. Miserable Miserable man. man! Miserable man! (laughs)
7: Next, the cloud revealed a vision of all of humanity for Gabriel. He saw those who had been delicately nurtured and tenderly brought up, cheerful under privations and superior to suffering, because they bore within their own bosoms the materials of happiness and peace. He also saw that men like himself, who snarled at the cheerfulness of others, were the foulest weeds on the fair surface of the earth.
8: It is a very decent and respectable sort of world after all.
7: The cloud closed over this last picture and seemed to lull him to repose. One by one the goblins faded from his sight and he sank to sleep. The day had broken when Gabriel Grubb awoke. <laughs>
8: It's morning. Have I been here all night? This is my coat and spade. Oh, my back. It's as if a hundred tiny goblins kicked me during the night. Was it a dream? I must get back to town.
7: But he was an altered man, and he could not bear the thought of returning to a place where his repentance would be scoffed at. He hesitated for a few moments, and then turned away to wander where he might. Some 10 years later, a ragged, contented old man named Gabriel Grubb returned to the town. He told his story to the clergyman and also to the mayor, and in course of time, it began to be received as a matter of history. This story has at least one moral that if a man turns sulky and mean-spirited at Christmas time, let the spirits be as good as those which Gabriel Grubb saw in the Goblin's Cavern.
0: We wish you a Merry Christmas. We wish you a Merry Christmas. We, we wish, wish you, you a
8: Merry Christmas, Christmas and a Happy, Happy New Year. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: The Story of the Goblins Who Stole a Sexton, written in 1836 by Charles Dickens. Radio adaptation by Cynthia Meyer. In order of appearance, you heard Joseph McGrath, Carly Elizabeth Preston, Ryan Parker Knox, and Hunter Natt. Original music composed and performed by Russell Ronnebaum. Directed by Christopher Johnson. Happy holidays, and thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show is a production of AZPM. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore.
4: Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.